0: Good morning Good morning. Good morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer Dear Lord We just come before you today And we just want to thank you all, Give you thanks and praise Just for the blessing you've given us With this rolling this past week We just want to thank you so much And you've answered our prayers We just pray that you help us stay steadfast And help work in the states That won't outlaw abortion To make it outlawed in those states as well We also just want to pray that you let all the distractions of the world just leave us for the next 45 minutes to an hour so we can concentrate on you and just give you praise and glory in all things. Amen. God is a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath. We must remember that he has all of his attributes at the same time. When it comes to passages about God's wrath, we don't know what to do with them. So we ignore them altogether or feel a need to apologize for them. Worse yet, we try to make them more acceptable by whitewashing them. We turn stories about God's wrath, like Noah's Ark into children's stories about a cartoon boat full of smiling animals. My friends, we do not need to make excuses for what God's word says. God doesn't. This morning, we're going to look at an account of God's wrath, where the people of Nineveh Nineveh find out that it is terrifying to fall into the hands of an angry God. Please open up your Bibles to the book of Nahum, chapter 3. Nahum, chapter 3. Let's see what God wants to tell us through His prophet. Starting in verse 1. Woe to the city of bloodshed! Completely full of deception and pillage, her prey never departs. The sound of the whip, the sound of the rumbling wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. Horsemen charging and swords flaming and spears flashing. Many slain, a massive corpse, and there is no end to the dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will uncover your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw detestable filth on you, and display you as a wicked fool, and set you up as a spectacle. And it will be that all who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is devastated, who will console her? Where will I find, seek comforters for you? Are you better than Noamon, which sits along the waters of the Nile, with waters sur- surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea? whose wall consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without end. Put and Lubin were among her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went to captivity. Also, her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all of her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a strong defense from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread mortar and take hold of the brick mold. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locusts. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traders more than the stars of the heaven. The creeping locusts strips and flies away your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts your marshers are like the locust swarm encamping in the stone walls on a cold day the sun rises and they flee and the place where they are is not known your shepherds are sleeping O king of Assyria your mighty ones are lying down your people are scattered on the mountains and there is no one to regather them There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear the report about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? This morning, we're going to examine Nahum chapter 3 using the five points suggested by John Phillips in his excellent commentary the fierceness of Nineveh, the filthiness of Nineveh, the folly of Nineveh the fear of Nineveh, and finally, the fall of Nineveh. But before we do that, we need to get some background information about Nineveh to see how they got to this point. The book of Nahum could really be called Jonah Part 2. The end of the book, Jonah, was not the end of the story. It was only an intermission. The book of Nahum is the second half of the story and answers the question of what happened to the Ninevites after they repented of their evil ways, and God showed them mercy. It's been about 150 years. Generations have come, and generations have gone. Throughout the years, the Ninevites returned to their evil and wicked ways. Once again, God was patient with them. But the time had come where they were apt to answer for all the evil they had done. And that brings us to the book of Nahum. Nahum was a prophet of God, whose ministry ran from about 663 to 612 BC. We know very little about him, except that he was an Elkoshite. There is no city found in the Bible named Elkosh, and the word Elkoshite does not appear anywhere else in the scriptures. His name means comfort, which seems odd, since the entire book of Nahum is about the judgment of God and the destruction of Nineveh. But if you really think about it, it's not. What was bad news for Nineveh was good news for the people of God. It proves to them that God will establish justice and will defeat his enemies. There is some controversy about how much time there was from when Nahum gave this prophecy to God's judgment was carried out. Some theologians believe that Nahum gave this prophecy just before God poured out his judgment. However, most commentators believe there was about a two- to three-year window in between them. Nineveh was one of the largest Gentile cities in the ancient world, and it was the epicenter and the capital of the brutal Assyrian Empire. It was located on the bank of the Tigris River and was protected by massive walls and moats that made it almost impossible to attack. But with God, nothing is impossible. In Nahum, we see how God used pagan nations as his instruments to execute justice on the Ninevites. The Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians surrounded the city of Nineveh with the intent to destroy it. They used fire and water against the walls of the city until they broke. Then they entered the city and destroyed it. The entire book of Nahum captures the prophecy of Nineveh's fall. In chapter 1, we see that God is a jealous God who will have his vengeance on the Ninevites for their wickedness and their crimes against Judah. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, Nahum tells us that a jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries, and he keeps his anger for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In chapter 2, Nahum warns Nineveh that the destruction is coming and proclaims that his people will be restored. In verse 2 of this chapter it reads, For Yahweh will restore Jacob, like the majesty of Israel, Even those who empty them have emptied them to destruction and ruined the vine branches. And that brings us to our text for today, chapter 3. Let's look at the fierceness of Nineveh. Verse 1. Woe to the city of bloodshed, completely full of deception and pillage. Her prey never reparts. When a prophet of God begins with the word woe, you know it's not going to be good news it is going to be a proclamation of God's judgment. It signifies that God is going to pour his wrath out on a people and it was not going to be pretty. But before he proclaims God's judgment in Nineveh, Nahum lays out four indictments in this verse about what God has against them. By laying out these indictments, Nahum is not trying to justify God's actions. He does not have to justify God does not have to justify himself to us. We are his creation. He does not answer to us. We answer to him. What he is doing is laying out his case against Nineveh to show us that he is just so that we can understand more about who he is and his character, that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. The first indictment, Nineveh is a city of bloodshed. The Ninevites were constantly launching aggressive military campaigns and invading cities to gain control over them. It has been reported that if a city was about to be taken over, many of its citizens' soldiers would take their own lives by their own hands instead of falling into the hands of the Ninevites. They were known for the brutality and their cruel treatment of prisoners. They enjoyed finding new ways to torture and maim their captives. It was a form of entertainment for them. After taking over a city, they would take the most prominent people and leaders, publicly torture them, then leave them on display as a warning to all. I don't be graphic, but it's important to get an understanding of what they did so we can understand why God referred to them as a city of bloodshed. The lucky prisoners only had their ears, nose, and tongues cut off. And others were tortured in ways we will not talk about this morning. Nineveh was truly a city of bloodshed. The second indictment. Nineveh is completely full of deception. Nineveh was well known for their unhanded dealings with other nations. They would sometimes surround cities and promise that if that city surrendered, the the lives of their leaders would be spared and they would deal with the people kindly. Once the offer is accepted, they will decimate the city with little to no opposition and show no mercy. At times, they would enter into treaties with other cities and offer to protect them for money. But those were just empty promises. When those cities needed help, Nineveh was nowhere to be found. The third indictment, Nineveh pillages its victims. To pillage means to rob using violence during a time of war. Whenever the Ninevites invaded land, they took whatever they wanted. If they didn't take something, they would destroy it, so the people who survived invasion could not use it. They devoured anything in their path and left a little bit, uh, left little behind. Where the Ninevites went, carnage followed. The fourth indictment: Nineveh's prey never departs. The Ninevites never rested and were always looking for fresh prey and they did not have any trouble finding it. There was always another city or village to ramshack and ravage, and when they found one, they showed no mercy. They would attack it like a pack of hungry wolves who got into a a sheep pen full of young lambs. Verses 2 and 3. The sound of the whip, the sound of the rumbling wheel, the galloping horses and bounding chariots, Horsemen charging, and swords flaming, and spears flashing. Many slain, a mass of corpse. And there is no end to the dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. In these two verses, name paints a vivid war picture of the coming invasion. It's almost like you're seeing it play out on a movie screen. An army is racing towards Nineveh, and you can hear them long before you can see them. The sound of the whip striking the horses, urging them forward as their hoofs beat the hard ground. The clanking and rumbling of the chariots full of warriors ready for battle. Then they come into view, and it's even worse than it sounded. The warriors had their swords drawn, and the blades are shining in the sun, ready to cut and slash. Other warriors are equipped with spears, ready to plunge into their enemies. According to Ken Fentress, blood would be spilled in a city of blood, Death is coming to a culture of death. At the end of verse 3, name paints a horrific picture of the aftermath. It was a massacre. Nineveh lost, and they lost big time. Wherever you looked, all you saw were the bodies of the slain Ninevites. You could not even take a step without tripping over them. Death was everywhere. Moving on to our second point. The filthiness of Nineveh. Verse 4. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Nineveh did not just dabble in prosecution, they were, or prostitution. They were engrossed in it. There was literal prostitution. Brothels could be found throughout the city and sexual immorality was everywhere. There was political prostitution. Nineveh would sell the military power to the highest bidder and strike down nations for money. There was spiritual prostitution. Sexual morality played a major role in their worship of false gods in the Temple of Ishtar. When Nineveh invaded a city in the name, they would always do it in the name of one of their false gods. And when they took over land, they had a very effective form of evangelism. Convert to their false gods or die. In addition to prostitution, Nineveh participated in sorcery. They relied on it for guidance. From the scriptures, we know sorcery is no small thing. God sees this as an abomination. In Deuteronomy 18:10, God warned his people not to participate in it. When you enter the land Yahweh your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices soothsaying, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who is an enchanter, or a medium, or a spiritualist, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. And because of these abominations, Yahweh of God, will dispose them before you. As you can see, this prohibition against sorcery was not just for Israel. It was also for all the nations. And those pagan nations who participated in it was one of the reasons God gave why he was going to dispose of them. Verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will uncover your skirts over your face. As Christians, we can't take comfort in verses like Romans 8.31 that states, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? But Nineveh cannot take comfort in knowing that God is for him, because he just declared, Behold, I am against you. This same proclamation that Nahum made in the last verse of chapter 2. How terrifying it would be to hear that God is against you. Continuing on in verse 5. And show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. In their culture, showing your nakedness or being half-dressed would instead be shameful. It was not sinfully celebrated like it is today. Nineveh was being told that their fault would be great, that they would be shamed and disgraced. In verse 6. I will their detestable filth on you, and display you as a wicked fool, and set you up as a spectacle. God promises that Nineveh will be fully exposed for their dirty, their filthy, and their evil ways. Their defeat will be so public that everyone will see it. It will be the talk of the town, and it will be an example to the other pagan nations of their need to repent. Verse 7. And it will be that all who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will console her? Where will I seek comforters for you? The nation of Nineveh will see its destruction and will not come to their aid. They will not try to rescue them. Nineveh will be on their own. Let's move on to our third point. The folly of Nineveh. Verses 8 and 9. Are you better than Noamon, which sits along the waters of the Nile and the waters surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without end. Pud and Lubin were among her helpers. Noaman is also known as the city of Thebes. A lot of older translations may use the, refer to as Thebes instead of Noamon. It's located about 450 miles south of what is modern-day Cairo. In ancient times, it was a very powerful city, and its geographical location provided a great natural defense against invading armies. There was a huge network of lakes, moats, canals, and rivers that made it hard for armies with chariots and heavy equipment to cross over. They also made strong alliances with powerful nations such as Ethiopia, Egypt, Hut and Lubin. So between these natural barriers, their alliances, and the big walls they built up, they were considered to be invincible, and that the walls could not be moved. Verse 10. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity, and also her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all of her great men were bound with fetters. But Noman, the invincible city, was invaded and it fell. The once great city of Noman was no more. It was devastated. It was destroyed. The invaders were ruthless and even killed all of the infants. The leaders of the city were captured, and then the warriors who took them gambled to see who would own them. Nahum held up the destruction of Noman as an example to Nineveh. An example of what was going to happen to them. But this example was also very ironic because it was Nineveh that had invaded and destroyed Noaman. A a city that fell by their own hand was using an example of what awaited them. So, what was this fall of Nineveh? John Phillips rightly points out that it was a presumption and pride. Nineveh had this mindset of it can't happen here. No one stands a chance against us. They looked around and saw their strong city walls, the moats, their mighty warriors, and their long track record of military victories. They looked at the nations around them and saw them as weak and pathetic. They did not see anyone as a threat. They looked at themselves and felt unbeatable. They felt invincible. It was foolishness. And they were going to learn that pride always comes before a fall. Moving on to our fourth point, the fear of Nineveh. Verse 11, you too will become drunk. Nineveh will become like a drunkard and humiliate themselves. In several places of the Old Testament, we see how doomed nations are often referred to as being drunk. where they are drunk on the cup of God's wrath? After drinking the cup, they're so overwhelmed that they stumble around like they're intoxicated. We see an example of this in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 17. For thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and cause all nations to whom I send you to drink it. They were drinking stagger and go mad because of the sword that I was sent among them. Then I took the cup from the hand of Yahweh and made all the nations to whom Yahweh sent me drink it. Nations to whom Yahweh sent me drink it. And this reminds me of a cup that was mentioned in the New Testament. A cup that was meant for you, but somebody else drank it. In the Garden of me, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew what was in the cup and what awaited him. The full wrath of God was in the cup and he drank it every last drop. He drank it for you. My friends, you will never have to drink the cup of God's wrath if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone. Because Jesus drank it for you. Moving on to the rest of verse 11. You will be hidden. You too will search for a strong defense from the enemy. The Ninevites could not try to hide. It won't help them. God's wrath will find them. The Ninevites could search from one end of the earth to the other for weapons and for more soldiers amount of defense. But it won't matter. They would not be able to stand up against God's wrath. Verse 12. All your fortifications are trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Nineveh compare, Nahum compares Nineveh's defenses to a ripe fig tree that drops its fruit when you simply shake the trunk. And this comparison would have shocked the Ninevites. It would have been insulting. They prided themselves on having mighty warriors and strong defenses that you could not penetrate. And God was telling them they would be, be would be defeated as easily as a child can shake figs off a tree. What they did not know is that their army was already overextended and starting to crumble. And they would soon find out their defenses were no match for God. Using this metaphor of ripe fig tree to signify divine judgment is not something that Nahum made up. It is used throughout the scriptures. For example, the prophet Isaiah used it to warn the Sumerians of divine judgment at the hands of the Assyrians or the Ninevites in Isaiah 28 verses 2 to 4. Behold, the Lord has a strong and courageous agent. As a storm of hell, a tempest of destruction. Like a storm of mighty, overflowing waters, he has set it down on the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is the head of the fertile valley, would be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees it, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. In the New Testament, Jesus himself used the parable of the fig tree to warn us of the nearness of God's judgment. In Mark 13, starting verse 28, it reads, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When the branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who, leaving his house and giving authority to his slaves. Each one his task has commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. And I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Going back to Nahum chapter 3, verse 13. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Nahum just called Nineveh's warriors girly men. You heard that right. He called them girls. At this time, women did not serve in combat. Like it was not like today where countries shamefully send the women into combat. By referring to Nineveh's warriors as women, He was implying that they were weak and ill-equipped for battle. Just the thought of a woman being a warrior would have disgraced a nation. But wait a minute. What about Deborah? Wasn't she a judge? Didn't she bravely lead the Israelites? Let's take a peek at this account. Judges chapter 4 starting verse 4. Judges 4 starting verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at the time and she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom from Kiddush Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded? Go and march them the Mount of Talbor and take with you 10,000 men. For the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulon. And I'll draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops, to the river Kishon, and I'll give him into your hand. Then Brok said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said to him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. As you can see, she did, but it was not a good thing. It was seen as something that was shameful and embarrassing. Moving on to her fifth point, the fall of Nineveh. Draw for yourselves water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Naaman advises Nineveh to get ready for the coming battle. Judgment was coming and they needed to be ready. First he tells them to draw water for the siege and to store it behind the gates. It was a common practice when nations would invade other nations. They would knock sand, rocks, and dirt into the canals and the source of the water that led into the city to dry up their drinking supply. Because if they didn't have water... They could not stay in the city long, and they couldn't fight. Second, he tells them to make bricks and to patch any weak areas in their walls. But no matter how strong they made their fortifications, the city was going to fall. Verse 15. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as a locust does. Multiply yourself like a creaming locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. Like he did at the beginning of this count, Naam paints another vivid word picture. When locusts would, go and would enter into a field, they could wipe out an entire field very quickly and leave nothing. In the same way he's painting this picture, as these soldiers were coming into Nineveh, they were going to set the fields on fire and burn down all their food supply, and there would be nothing left. Verse 16, You have increased your traders more than the stars of heaven the creeping locust strips and flies away. Nineveh was at the epicenter of trade in its region because it was situated on the Tigris River and a major trade route went right by the city. As a result, its traders and merchants became very rich and seemed to have an endless supply of money. But just as the locust strips, builds, clean and flies away, the wealth of Nineveh will be stripped away. Their days of prosperity were over. Verse 17, your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like a locust swarm, encamping in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Nineveh could multiply the troops as rapidly as the locusts multiply, but it would not make a difference. Name compare the Nineveh warriors to the locusts who become lethargic and hide in cold weather. And when the invasion happens, it's once brave warriors will freeze like deers in a headlight or run away like scared children. And as we come to verses 18 and 19, Nahum changes from addressing the entire city to specifically addressing the king. Verse 18, your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your mighty ones are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains and there is no one to regather them. When the invasion happens, all of the king's advisors will be asleep. In other words, there will be no help. They will have no clue of what to do and would not be able to offer any assistance. And when he needs them most, they're going to run away. Verse 19. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. Nineveh was just not going to lose the battle. They were going to lose the war. There would be nothing left to build upon. Everything would be destroyed. There would be finished. In fact, after Nineveh was destroyed, it was in ruins. It was not, the ruins were not even found until the mid-19th century. God's wrath would be poured out on them and there's nothing they can do to withstand it. Continuing on with verse 19, And all hear the report about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has your evil who has not your evil past continually. When the news of Nineveh's destruction spreads, there will be no tears. There will be no weeping. There will be no sadness. Instead, the news of their destruction will be met with clapping hands, shouts of joy, and celebrations. All the nations that were once opposed by Nineveh will be praising and thanking God. Nineveh's destruction was an act of compassion for God's people. A loving God deliver his people out of the hands of their enemy. Now you may be saying to yourself, this prophecy from what happened 2,500 years ago does not really mean anything to me today. My friends, God did not give us this account merely as a history lesson or to fill up some space in the Bible. He gave it to us because he wants us to learn from it. While there are many lessons we can learn from name chapter 3, we're going to look at two of them. First, God will judge the nations. God will judge all nations, including this one that we so dearly love. When we look around at what has happened in the United States, we're tempted to say that we are being judged by God. That as a nation, we're, we are experiencing His divine wrath. But without divine revelation or special revelation, we cannot truly know. What we're experiencing might be followed by repentance and a great revival. Or we might be experiencing the beginning of God pouring his wrath out on us as a country. Or we might still be throwing up wrath for the day of our destruction. Regardless of if we're currently under the divine judgment of God or not, it's fair to say that our country deserves it. A case can be made that our nation is guilty of many of the things that God had against Nineveh. But before I do that, I need to make some important clarifications. I am not saying that Nahum chapter 3 is really a prophecy about the United States. I am not saying that Nineveh was a type or shadow of the United States. What I am saying is that there are many similarities, and we can learn from their downfall. That we should preach the gospel from coast to coast. That we should call a nation repentance for our wicked deeds. Just like Nineveh, the United States is a city of bloodshed. According to the Gudemacher Institute, there were over 900,000 abortions in the United States just in 2020. Over 60 million from when Roe was first passed. But that number is actually much higher because they do not include self managed abortions from things like the morning after pill. Let that sink in. Last year, or two years ago now, in 2020, over 900,000 children were murdered. Mm-hmm. In horrific and painful ways, inside what is supposed to be the safest place in the world, their mother's womb. We we should rejoice and thank God that Roe v. Wade was overturned, and it is something we should celebrate. It is a blessing from God. As a result, abortion will be effectively banned in my home state of Ohio. But many states are moving in the complete opposite direction. In anticipation for the rolling, 15 states codified the right to abortion in their state law and are moving towards allowing abortion up until the moment of birth. Our president and our many of our main major leaders and mayors of major cities have put out press releases and already given speeches about what a horrific day it is that abortion was ended. Um, from the different protests we're seeing, we're seeing that it's quite obvious that people know that abortion kills children, and they do not care. They're honoring themselves and worshiping themselves instead of honoring life and obeying God's law. Lord, Has a nation forgotten that in Proverbs six seventeen that God hates hands that shed innocent blood? That's right. Many of our cities have become war zones. The city of Chicago alone locked over or almost 800 murders last year. Violent crime is skyrocketing throughout our country. The days of women and children first are long gone. We are now sending our wives and daughters into combat. I can go on, but I think the case has been made. The United States is a city of blood, or is a country of bloodshed. Just like Nineveh, the United States is for fornication and sexual morality. The United States is the biggest producer and exporter of pornography in the world. You take the next five countries and what they produce and combine it, and they don't even come close to what we put out. The content of some of our children's movies have been banned in several countries due to what they're promoting in terms of sexual morality and sexual identity. Public libraries are fully promoting sexual morality and unbiblical sexual identity to children. And these children's parents are bringing them to the libraries for them to do it. Marriage has been redefined and children in kindergarten are being taught unbiblical views of sexual identity. Marriage, oh, <clears throat> The bathing suits and summer clothing that is widely set by society would have been considered obscene and pornographic only 50 years ago. I can go on, but I think the case has been made. The United States is a country full of fornication and sexual morality. Time will not allow it, but we can walk through all the charges that God had against Nineveh. We can see that our nation is guilty of all of them. As a country... We are rebelling against God and spitting in his face. Our country deserves to have God's divine wrath poured out on it. But some of you might, have, might want to scream, Objection! You might want to say, Wait a minute, Chris. The United States is a Christian nation. Just look at the millions of dollars we spend spreading the word of God throughout the world. Look at the number of mission-centered organizations that are based in the United States. Look at the thousands and thousands of missionaries sent out from the U.S. to the farthest reaches of the world. And you would be right to a point. Many solid Christian churches and organizations have used the freedoms that God has blessed us with to bring the true gospel to a lost and dying world. And we should praise God for that. We should pray for more of that. But the United States is also the biggest export of heresy in the world. We continuously export the heretical prosperity gospel and hypercharismania that has taken over much of Africa. We continuously export a, for, a form of Christianity where salvation has been reduced to walking an aisle, raising your hand, and endless altar calls, methods that were introduced by heretics like Charles Finney. We continuously export easy believism where you can be saved but not have Jesus as the Lord of your life that you can just say a sinner's prayer and live however you want to. We're also one of the biggest promoters of Chrislam. Chrislam is an unphilical attempt to merge Christianity and Islam to make it more acceptable and less offensive to the Muslim world. My friends, as you can see, there's more than enough evidence to convict our nation. But what can you and I do about it? we can spend time on our knees pleading with God that He would send revival to our land and change hearts. We can be heralds of the truth and proclaim the gospel. As souls are saved saved and hearts change through evangelism and the preaching of the gospel, we can see our nation change its wayward direction. We can use the freedoms that God's given us to be active with electing officials that will help promote God's law. Now let's move on to the second lesson that we can learn from Nahum chapter 3. God will judge you. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear because Jesus already paid the penalty of your sins for you. And he has the scars on his hands and feet to prove it. But if you're not saved, if you're not a believer, if you're not in Christ, you have everything to fear. Just like Nineveh did, you will find out that it is terrifying to fall into the hands of an angry God. You may be thinking, I do not deserve judgment. I have not done all the horrible things that the Ninevites did. I have not killed anyone. I have not committed adultery. But my friends, if you truly examine your life, you will see that you are a sinner and you've broken each and every one of the Ten Commandments. You've broken them so many times that you cannot count them. And since you have broken God's law, he will send you to hell and pour out his righteous wrath on you for eternity. Not for a few hours, not for a few days, not for a few weeks, for eternity. And that is what awaits you if you die in your sins. But thankfully, our merciful God provided a way for you to escape the wrath to come. And that way of escape is only found through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is truly God, truly man. And he lived the perfect life you cannot live. And he never broke God's law. He never sinned in thought or deed, not even one time. And he went to the cross as part of God's preordained plan to save his people from their sins. And on the cross, he substituted himself for all those who repent and believe. And we know his sacrifice accepted because he rose from the dead three days later. That means if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, he will save you. He will redeem you. He will break the chains of slavery and set you free from your sin. And all of your sins were imputed to put on Jesus, and he will pay the penalty of them for you. But that's not all. His perfect record of obedience to God's law will be given to you as well. It will be like you lived his perfect life. And my friends, that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But like I said many times this morning, God is a patient God. But don't take His patience, His kindness, His mercy for granted. He has given you, what, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years of you rebelling against Him and breaking His commandments. Because He is a patient God, He not poured out His divine wrath on you yet. As it says in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But don't take that as an excuse to continue in your sins. See this as an opportunity to run to him in repentance and faith. Do not delay. Do not keep putting it off. You have not been promised tomorrow. You may live another 50 years, or your life can be taken from you as you pull out of this parking lot. Now it's time to make peace with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just come before today, and we just want to thank you so much for just for this account you've given us in Nao. I just pray that we just don't look at this as some story of from 2,500 years ago in history. That we take its lessons to heart. That we look around and see the wickedness in our country, and we call our nation to repentance. I just pray that you help us examine ourselves to see if we're truly in you, and if not, I just pray. You just change our hearts and bring us to saving knowledge and faith in your son. Amen. Amen.